Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with Pastor Nick Gibson and a very special guest today, Andrew Clavin. Andrew, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Um, so before we get started talking about your new book and everything, do you just kind of want to tell people who you are and kind of what you've done throughout your life and, and what's led you up to writing this book? Yeah, I, most of my life I was a, I am a, a crime writer, a thriller writer. Uh, and uh, in the l- latter part of my life, I got into commentary and first political commentary and then religious commentary. I became, I was born uh, and raised a Jew was mostly a secular non-believer until I was in my 40s and I was baptized when I was 49. So it was a long journey. Hmm. Well, that's great. So, okay, so you you just came out with a new book maybe a couple of weeks ago called The Truth and Beauty. Um, and so I guess the first question that I'd, ha- that I'd ask is, what made you decide to write this book? Well, it, it came out of a conversation I was having with my son, which was basically that every time, every time I felt that I understood something that Jesus was telling me, a way he was telling me to live, my life became more joyful, not in, in that moment, but over overall, uh, it raised my level of joy, by which I mean my level of enthusiasm for life. Um, and yet I was having a lot of trouble understanding certain things that he said and, under, and, and asking myself whether I actually believed them. Uh, you know, do I really believe I should love my enemies? Um, I don't even like my enemies. You know, I, you know, do I, do I really think that, um, someone is of little faith if he can't walk on water and that sort of thing. And my son said to me, you know, you're you're trying to understand a philosophy when you should be trying to get to know a man. And that struck me immediately as a brilliant insight, because when you know somebody uh, like, you know, your spouse or your kids or something like that, you don't think about what their philosophy of life is. You think, what would they feel if they were here now? What would they think of this? Would this make them happy? Would this make them sad? So I went back and tried an experiment, which is that I tried to read the Gospels basically without theology. Uh, I eliminated the, all, every history of, <clears throat> of thought about Christianity, thousands of years, uh, the, the Catholic Church, St. Paul, everything. It just uh, got rid of it. And, and even uh, Protestant theology, all of it just got rid of it and just thought, who is this guy? You know, just read the, the Gospels to know the main character, uh, as you might read a novel or you might read a, an autobiography or, or a biography. And as I was doing that, um, what I found was that the lines of the lines of poetry kept coming back to me, uh, poetry that I've loved all my life, the romantic poets, uh, and they helped explain to me what I thought Jesus was saying, and they kind of illuminated what he was saying in a new way. And I thought the exper- experience was so powerful for me, uh, it increased my level of connection uh, to Christ and my joy in living through that that I thought it was worth recording and worth talking about, even though I could tell from the start, it was kind of this odd subject. It's kind of a hard thing to communicate. Uh, so it's been really gratifying that the book has done so well and, and really seems to be connecting with people because I wasn't even sure I was going to be able to sell it when I was writing it. Uh, but that's how the book came about. So Andrew, one of the things you say in the book is, is that you feel, you hope that the interaction of the gospels, the Jesus of the gospels with the romantics would be helpful because in some ways they lived in a time similar to ours. Yeah, I, almost I mean, I think about that in relationship to like Charles Taylor's disenchantment of the world and that the romantics were trying to like re-enchant the world and that there's a certain way in which the inhumanity of humanity right now needs a kind of re-enchantment. Yeah. And that you thought the interaction would be helpful. You want to talk a little bit about that? Well, that's a, a great way of talking about it, the disenchantment of the world. I mean, their time was so much like our time that uh, I find it almost uncanny. Um, you know, a lot of people don't know a lot of history. So that what they know is they know that the Roman Empire fell and that there was Hitler. And so they're always comparing everything to World War II and the fall of the Roman Empire. But this is actually a time in history that was so much like ours uh, that it's remarkable. There was this rise of radical politics uh, through the French Revolution that people, some people thought was going to solve everybody's problems. It was just going to rewrite not only the the uh, functions and rights and rituals of the world, but rewrite reality itself. Uh, there was a rise of science, which was challenging standard uh, Christian belief. There was a turning against the church. And basically, uh, the world was becoming disenchanted. The idea that, um, you know, that it, we were living in this magical world of angels and fairies and miracles and all that stuff was just being kind of pushed aside by science. And what these 
this generation was faced with was, was the idea of, well, what is the human experience? Is there such a thing as a human experience of truth? Uh, is there such a thing as a human experience of an, an inner personality? Or am I just a series of, of structures built by society? Is there such a thing as gender? They were asking questions like that for the first time. Uh, is marriage a good thing or a bad thing? Or is it a form of slavery, which many radicals at the time thought it was? Uh, can radical politics actually make life better or not? So they were dealing with all the same questions. And there was no going back. There was no going back to the Middle Ages uh, in the same way there's no going back for us to a pre-technological world. So what were they going to do with that information? How are they going to find the things that they knew in their hearts to be true? Uh, how are they going to find them and substantiate them and, and recreate a world in which men and women could live in a moral uh, and, and full and complete human manner? And these poets, I think, did it better than anybody uh, because the Germans were trying to do it through philosophy, but it's not really a philosophical question. It really is a question of experience and poetry and is our experience. How do we know when our experience is real? If, if beauty and truth are linked, how do we know what's beautiful? How do we know what's true? Or is it just you think one thing is beautiful and I think another thing is, is beautiful? And so those are the questions they were asking as I think we're asking them today. You, you, so you would include in that for the, the idea like humans experiencing, at least emotionally, that empiricism isn't enough as a way of interacting with the world. That like, whether that was Scottish Enlightenment or German empiricism, that like, that's all good, but it's not enough. It's leaving out huge swaths of what it means to be a human being and being humans together. Well, that, that's one thing. And also it had no basis to stand on. I mean, there, there are, I always say there are two pillars to Western civilization, Socrates and Jesus, and both of them were facing people uh, who believed that there was no such thing as truth. You see it in Pilate's response uh, mm -hmm. to Jesus when he says, I speak the truth and those who hear the truth hear, hear my words. And he says, what is truth? You know, and that's the, the you know, he's talking to this barefoot, you know, uh, itinerant preacher in the backwater of the Roman Empire. And he is the most, uh, uh, an emissary from the most civilized, civilized society around. And he's saying, well, what is truth? As if, there is no answer to that question. Socrates faced the same thing with the sophists. They were saying, it's not a question of truth. It's a question of what arguments you can make and what you can make sound uh, correct. Very much like postmodernism today and the, and the postmodern theories today. Margarita Mooney at Princeton Theological Seminary recently said, in an era like our own, people are often forced to decide between believing in mystery or ideology. That like... Either you could conceptualize something romantically larger than empiricism and that therefore gives you access to something like truth and beauty, or you're forced to say everything comes down to procedure, procedure dictates, and that is dictatorial. And that it, there's like a binary in our experience. Do you, do you think there's truth to that? Is that, is that kind of what you're getting at? That like, if we're not going to be ideologues, we have to have something as big and as good and mystery and therefore that, that is our access to truth and beauty has to be that thing. It, it has to, it's a question of the subjective experience of life. I mean, is, where is the validity? We're, we're living in a time now where the subjective experience of life, we're told it is both meaningless and sovereign at the same time. So in other words, that you feel something is immoral uh, means nothing because someone else may feel something else is immoral and who is to decide between you. So your inner life means nothing. At the same time, if I say to you, oh, by the way, uh, Nick, I just turned into a woman. Uh, now you have to treat me like a woman and give me the right proper pronouns, then that's supposed to be sovereign. You're not supposed to be able to, to challenge that at all. We have to find some way of centering ourselves before the experience of life can begin, before the can truly begin and be enriched uh, and, and move forward in a human way. If you solve the problem of humanity by ceasing to be human, uh, and ideology is, is one only one method of doing that. But if you solve a pro the problem of humanity by ceasing to be human, you haven't solved the problem at all. You simply eliminated the whole purpose of the exercise. Yeah. Well, okay. So a, a lot of modern Christians and conservatives, they would say that the romantics may have been integral in screwing things up in the modern world. Um, so I guess, what, I mean, what do you have to say to that to, to start with? Well, first of all, there's, there's this really uh, false idea of who the romantics were, that they were all... Uh, one philosophy. There was a huge range of romantics. Uh, some were atheists, some were believers, uh, some, you know, uh, primatized uh, emotion, but others were very deeply into science. Uh, you know, as the um, great critic uh, Jacques Barzin said, what brought them together was the problems 
they were trying to solve. And so my book centers on those guys who I thought came closest to saying something useful about those problems, because many of them didn't. Many of them, uh, their their words have become irrelevant over time, but many of their words have become even more and more relevant, and I think really illuminating. So to say the romantics did something is, is kind of meaningless. Um, and, and I think it's been used by people who are pushing uh, what I call the enlightenment narrative. The enlightenment narrative is we had the classical world, then that collapsed and we were in a world of religious darkness. And then hurrah, the enlightenment came uh, and we set aside religion and went forward into this bright new uh, uh, scientific future. That's just not true. That, that, in, that narrative has truth in it, but it's not true. And so the romantics were a, a signpost along the way of another road, you might call it a, a more narrow road uh, to a greater and deeper and more human truth, I think. Hmm. Oh, and you, it sounds like you're saying that different romantics actually offered different paths, but they were all romantic. Like they were all seeking truth and beauty. But Byron, like I, I'm thinking of your chapter on Mary Shelley, how like Byron and Mary Shelley would have both been romantics but like very different in their understanding of femininity, for example, like their answer to femininity, very different. Well, their answer, yes. And their answer to gender roles and, and the answer of the gen, of gender roles uh, that that uh, Mary Shelley's lover and ultimate husband, uh, Percy Shelley, came up with was very different than the one she ultimately came up with. I mean, she was uh, a very she was uh, worshipped. Percy Shelley uh, made a god out of him, and after he died, rewrote his entire personality to make him more saintly. But she herself uh, said, I, "I never had any feeling for the radicals." Uh, you know, she basically cast aside the free love that was at the heart of Percy Shelley's um, attitude. She never embraced his virulent uh, atheism. So yeah, they were all coming. They all had the same problems. They all had the same set of problems that the age presented them with, but they all solved those problems in different ways. And that makes romanticism a very, very broad term for a, a certain period in time when people were trying to reestablish that inner life. What is the inner life? Okay. So, but do you want to kind of tell us about before you wrote this book and kind of before you went on this whole journey of, of researching all of this, um, how did you view Jesus at that point compared to after you were done um, writing this book? How did you view Jesus? I think a lot of people like end up in the same boat where Jesus becomes just this person that you read about, but you don't know there, there's nothing human about him. And I think, I think it's, I mean, yeah, just tell us about your journey from like before and to after. Now, now, how do you think about Christ? Well, you know, I remember it, it, I was 49 when I was baptized. So it took me a good uh, 35 years of adult consciousness, uh, we might say, before I accepted Christ, you know. And so I went down a lot of wrong, wrong roads. It, it gave me so much joy and serenity to come to Christ that I, I frequently would go to God kind of complaining uh, and saying, you know, like, I, I know I'm a Jew, but why did you make me wander 40 years in the wilderness before you brought me to the promised land? And, and you know, the answer I came up with is that God wanted me to go down every wrong philosophical road and find every dead end that there was. So that when I talk to people, and I do talk to people now who accept certain philosophical ideas that I know are going to lead them uh, to a bad place or just an empty place, um, I, I know why and I know where they're going to go. And so by the time I was baptized, I didn't really have a lot of doubts left about who Jesus was or that he was who he said he was. Uh, I was quite convinced and quite um, uh, my, my faith was kind of built on very solid ground at that point because I had tried everything else. Like the old joke, of, you know, you, you always do the right thing after you've tried everything else. Uh, I, so I was I was very firmly uh established in my faith of who Jesus was. My problem is, is that just possibly by the nature of my personality or possibly because of the nature of my journey, I'm less interested in deep the theology or supernatural theology, even though I love to discuss it, I love to talk about it, than I am in knowing what does God want from me at this moment and in, on this day, you know? So people frequently who follow, you know, I talk about politics a lot and people frequently, frequently will say, "Is are this, these the end times? And my answer is, I don't know. I have no clue. I mean, it actually says in the gospel, you have no clue. 
I agree. I have no clue. Not only that, I trust God entirely to take care of it. I trust God entirely to take care of judgment. Uh, he said, do, do not judge. And people are always trying to fudge that statement and saying, well, he meant this or he meant that. I think that's exactly what he meant. He is leave the judgment to God. He will do it exactly right. There will be just the right amount of mercy. There will be just the right amount of justice. Not my job. My job is to take whatever God has given me and return it to him tenfold if I can, you know, and that's my job. And how do I do that in this moment? And that's what I was trying to get at. And I felt that after a certain burst of understanding and new uh, uh, truth in my life and new, uh, this new relationship with, with Jesus Christ, that I kind of hit a, not a wall, but a stumbling block in my understandings. And that was what I was trying to get past. Andrew, some people have, a lot of people have listened to Jordan Peterson's lectures on the Bible, especially Old Testament ones. And some people have felt like Jordan is so into Carl Jung that all he can see is Carl Jung in the Bible, right? And others have said, no, actually the interlocutor, the person you're having a conversation with in your head when you're interpreting something can bring out a lot of really interesting insights, right? And so Jung allowed Jordan to see meaning in all these things that people passed over to interpret them psychologically, right? In some ways, I, I'm tempted to say something similar to you that like, you've tried to interpret the gospels in conversation with the romantics, like a different interlocutor, like a different conversation partner. It's like you were having whiskeys with the romantics whilst reading the Bible, right? Like what, what is special about the romantics? I mean, part of it is like they were living in a similar time. They were dealing with similar questions, right? Is, is that the thing that made it so fruitful you felt like? Yeah, I, but I would I would disagree with you. I mean, I, I, I you know I know Jordan and I and I like him a lot. But I, I I've told him to his face that I like to ask him about God because it's like shooting at a man's feet to watch him dance. Uh, you know, he's he's struggling with this concept, uh, the Jungian concept, which is basically Jung said. Um, we can't know whether God is just our engagement with everything or whether he is out there. I don't agree with that. I think that that is a, a misunderstanding of what faith is and how faith works. And I think Jung will get you in this kind of circular thing where you ultimately are talking with yourself. The whole point of the romantics was that you're not talking with yourself. This is why C.S. Lewis said, if you start with Wordsworth, you will ultimately get to faith. And as I point out, Wordsworth started with Wordsworth and did ultimately uh, come to faith. And the reason uh, C.S. Lewis said that specifically was because Wordsworth teaches you to engage with something outside yourself. And it's only when you understand that your spirit is in connection through the Holy Spirit with the great spirit. It's only when you understand that, that you start to understand who you are. So I would, I would just push back a little bit on the idea that I'm having drinks with the romantics. What the romantics were for me and are for me was a bridge to something more than themselves. And, and that is what C.S. Lewis said about them as well. And that's what I think uh, Owen Barfield, who was one of the Inklings, uh, I think mm -hmm. the most brilliant of the Inklings, uh, also said about Coleridge and Wordsworth and, and these romantics is that they set up a, a bridge as if they were coming out of a desert back into the into the uh, Garden of God. They, they set up a road that a modern person can understand. It doesn't, it's not, the, the, the romantics are not the point. They're just a, a way of understanding something fresh. But the idea that I'm only talking to myself or only talking to other writers, uh, I, you know, I don't think that's, that's true. I, I the whole point to me is that you're in collaboration with God and your existence, your experience of life cannot have true meaning unless you are a branch of the vine. That's one of the yeah. key phrases that came back to me as I was writing this. One of, the, one of the phrases that became enlarged as I was writing this is being a branch of the vine. I think that's very much what the romantics were struggling to get back to. Yeah. Sorry. That's what I was trying to get at that. that the, like when I think of a conversation partner, I think somebody that evokes new thought in you. Absolutely. You know what I mean? A hundred percent. I agree with that. Yeah. That's, that's, that was the whole, that's the thing that, that brought me uh, to Christ. I started to pray after years of, uh, you know, I call it agnosticism, but it was really atheism. It was practical atheism. Uh, and when I started to pray, I was convinced over the course of five years that no, I was not talking to myself. You know, I I, uh, I was actually talking to someone who actually brought new ideas that I would never have come up with into my life. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about your son. Uh, I mean, the quote that you've, you've already said about him saying, you know, maybe you're trying to understand a philosophy when you should be trying to get to know a person. Um, I guess wh why was that such a great insight? And even furthermore, what does reading about Jesus, uh, Jesus's philosophy 
blind you to. If you read it as philosophy, right. Another one of the uh, phrases, and it's kind of an interesting uh, quote from the Gospels because it's just not mentioned much uh, in modern Christianity, is uh, Jesus says, I want the joy that is in me to be in you. And you think about that and you think that's a, that's a powerful thing to say. You don't get joy through philosophy. You know, you don't you can think things all you want uh, and it will and reason will take you to the river, but it won't get you across to the other side. You know, and I think that when Jesus says, I want the joy that's in me to be in you, it means that you have to be able to see what he sees. In other words, when when he says it's really fascinating when he says um, love your enemies. He doesn't say love your enemies because it will make the world a better place. The one thing Jesus never says is the world will become a better place. I mean, <laughs> he never even hints at the idea that the world might even become this much better. You know, it's, he says, he says, follow me and you're going to wind up with a cross. You know, you're going to wind up at the cross. But, but he does say, love your enemies so that you will be children of your father who brings the sun and the rain on the good and the bad alike, right? In other words, you will see, when you love your enemies, you will see them the way God sees them. You will start to see them in, as far as you're capable in the way God sees them. And that will cause Christ's joy to be in you. I have found that to be the literal truth. I mean, like, you know, people talk about interpreting the Bible literally. That is the literal truth, that if you can find some way to look at other people with love, you will see them the way God sees them and the world will become so much more beautiful and your life so much more joyful. I don't think you can think your way to that point. I think you have to live your way to that point and you have to walk with somebody and see through his eyes uh, to get to that point. And you can't, the only eyes that you can see through to see that are Christ's, you know? And so uh, that's what I mean by knowing somebody. Like, like I said before, you know, if I, if I come to a, a, a dress shop and I look through the window and say, oh, my wife would really like that dress. It's not because I know her philosophy of life, though I may. It's because I know her so well that she is part of me and I can see as she might see because I wouldn't know whether that dress is nice or not, you know? One of the things I noticed in so in, I'm gonna, I want to go back and ask some questions about the first and second sections of the book. The third section of the book, you talk more about Jesus himself. And it seems like one of the things that you're trying to do is to help people who have through theology, mostly connected with a ideology about the divinity of Jesus and trying to reintroduce them to sort of like the other half of Christology, which is to see Jesus as the human and that by understanding him, we understand that he's interacting with humanity, not abstractions as other people, and that he's behaving and seeking for us to behave in a way that's more humane. So you're trying to help people see Jesus as human, help see the people Jesus interacting with as humans and not abstractions, and to show that Jesus' actions are actually humane, like, like his dictums are, hu are, are profoundly humane rather than themselves like strange, abstract, nonsense kind of things. And is that, is that right? That that's what you're trying to help people see. And I'm going to say something about that. I'm trying to help people or what I was trying to do, it was, was help myself see um, what, what, how I was supposed to be changed by this experience, uh, by this event. It, you know, what, one problem I have with, with some Christians is that they don't seem to actually believe in the immensity of what they're talking about. You know, they're talking about the creator of the universe suffering death, you know, you're talking and suffering life <laughs> first it's first suffering life and then suffering death. And they, and they think, well, you know, if I, if I, you know, go to the homeless shelter and spoon out food, if I put some money in the pot, if I try to be polite and nice to people, even when I hate them, you know, that that's what he was talking about. And, and one of the things I point out is we all kind of know that we should be charitable. And, you know, uh, we all know if we cheat on our wives or our spouses, that that's the wrong thing to do. This seems to me an immense event. And I want to know what, how, it's supposed to affect my life immensely. Uh, and that's what I think I'm, I'm trying to get at. So when you talk about, um, I, you know, I don't think you can talk about Jesus as a man without talking about the fact that he is the, the, the incarnation. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to split those things apart. I guess you, I would agree with you in the sense that I'm not dealing with the things, as I say, I trust God to deal with completely. Uh, judgment, 
the end of days, you know, the, those, uh, the, the way, the history of the world, all of those things I leave in his capable hands. He hasn't asked my opinion, I, so I don't see any reason in trying to have one. Uh, you know, what I am trying to get at is what does he want, you know, why, what does he want from me? And I think that this is an answer when you start to see things, because it's going to be different in each person's case, right? I mean, we all, uh, we all may have to uh, love, but my life is going to be different than I got another guy's life who's, who's made to be an architect or uh, just a, you know, a wanderer on the face of the earth, whatever he's made to be. My life is going to be different. How do I find that in God uh, so that everything that I do uh, is done to the glory of God? Uh, so something I've been thinking about lately. Does, does that answer your question? I don't want to avoid yeah, it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 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 Um, so this is, I mean, maybe I'll just open this up for either of you because this is a question I've been thinking about. Um, yeah, like what's the order in which you should view Jesus? So if you're looking at Jesus as the human, can that open up, can, can that open up like too much interpretation as to like, I've been thinking a lot about at the end of Jesus' life when he goes up to heaven, he's like, go and preach the gospel to all the earth, commanding them uh, or teaching people to to follow all that I've commanded. And it seems like the philosophy, like what Jesus taught and his commands come before seeing through his eyes. Does that make any sense? So like, what's the order of operations here? I guess as a young Christian, I'm 22. A lot of people that listen to this are younger and I think sometimes when 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 Christ's life is romanticized, it can become in the modern times, it can turn Jesus into somebody that he's not. And so what's the order of operations for a new believer? I don't know if that makes sense, but like, do we follow his commands and his philosophies, which then will lead us to a point of of understanding how he views things or do we try to understand how he views things that will lead us to to the point of following his commands does that make sense yeah yeah i think it does let me let me see if i can respond in a reasonable way the the very the the question that i asked myself is okay you know thou thou shalt not murder you know the the man asks the rich man asks jesus you know how do i get into the kingdom of heaven and he lists certain of the uh, commandments. He says, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness. But obviously, doing those things is not, not doing those things is not what you are going to do, right? It's not, you know, I can not do those things all day long. You know, I can, I can live my life as a reign of non-terror, as I've tried to do, you know, that I'm not going to murder, I'm not going to steal, I'm not going to commit adultery. But what, why, why am I not going to do those things? That, that's my question. And, and I feel the, it's a question that doesn't get answered often enough. Uh, in the same way, you know, everything I do in my life, I try to do from a positive point of view. So if I think, gee, I'm drinking too much, I don't think drink less. I think be more conscious, be more awake, be more sober, be, uh, you know, uh, more alert to life. And so that's what I ask myself when I'm, when I hear these things as commands. Um, I think, okay, you know, yeah, 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 I'm with you, but why? Where am I going? What does that do for me when it opens up this path? And that's what I think it is, by the way. I think it's opening up the road. Uh, these things get in your way. Uh, lust gets in your way. Lust for greed gets in your way. I mean, these are things I see it all the time. I mean, I, you know, I live in the world. I'm not a, a church person. I'm, I go to church, but I'm not a person who lives in the church world. I live in the media world. I've lived in the, the media world all my life. Uh, I see a lot of people who get very rich. I see a lot of people who get lots of uh, uh, girls. I see a lot of these things, and I see that they get in the way of their of their becoming who they were meant to be. But becoming who you were meant to be, I think, is what Jesus is trying to get at. You know, when you uh, when you receive a talent and you're supposed to give it back tenfold, you don't give it back tenfold by burying it in the ground. You don't give it back tenfold by saying, I won't do this, I won't do that, I won't do that, anything. I mean, I'm, now I'm terrified to move. You know, you do it by clearing that stuff out of your way so that you can see the road in front of you. And that's what I was trying to get at. So I think, in other words, I think the answer is, which comes first? I think they both come at kind of at the same, they're one thing, you know? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah but I think one of the things that, you're kind of getting at too is like there's a and I think it's in John seven. He Jesus says something like, "If you want to know if what I'm saying is from God, obey what I have commanded, and then you'll know." Mm. And so there's this. So one of the things he's saying there is kind of one of the arguments you're making at the beginning of the book is probably philosophizing whether or not what I'm saying is correct is not going to get you there. 
probably taking my word for it, doing it. And then in doing so, you figure out why it works in the real world as it actually is with real humans in relationship to truth and beauty. Then you'll start to understand why I'm saying this. Then you'll start to know what I'm really like. And, and you know, it, it all depends too. I mean, I had to philosophize a lot, a lot to get to the point where I accepted Christ. I didn't accept Christ in, in a moment of despair. Uh, I couldn't because I thought he would just be a crutch if I reached out to him in my despair. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't find him because um, I didn't find him because I couldn't philosophize. I, find him, I found him because every other philosophy failed except for his. And so, you know, the philosophy is accepting him. But once you do, you're standing in front of the presence, right? So then it becomes a lot easier to say, okay, he said this, it has to mean something. You know, it, it, if, it, if it's not jiving with my ideas and my vision of the world, that something is off, something is askew. So, you know, you're talking about um, a, a kind of, I, I, I feel like you're positing a sort of blind obedience as the way forward, but I don't think it's supposed to be blind obedience. I think it's supposed to be obedience with open eyes. Uh, and I would not even be asking myself the question if I didn't believe he was who he says he was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way way some Catholic theologians say this is, is that um, God's commands are always ordered to reason, rightly understanding truth, beauty, and goodness. So that like, as you explore the commands of God, you're you like you were saying you're you're not just saying okay I have to do X you're you're also saying like well why would God command X like what because I believe he he gives commands ordered to reason that are in proper relationship to truth beauty and goodness and if I don't agree with this commandment it's be, actually because I don't understand truth beauty and goodness and if I actually walk through this not only do I quote obey and will that please God but it's actually going to school me and teach me in the school of truth and beauty and yeah. I will understand why the command was always ordered to reason and I will grow. You know, I think I think the one thing that I am saying, and maybe you feel differently about this, but I'm saying you shouldn't be afraid to say, I don't get this. Uh, this doesn't sound right to me. You know, um, yeah. now obviously, I'm not saying that to, to some schmo. I'm saying it to Jesus Christ. So I understand that maybe the problem is with me. You know, that's I start from that that uh, position of humility. Mm-hmm. But I'm maybe because I come from this from so far away, I traveled so far to get here. I'm not afraid to say I'm not I'm not seeing this. I don't see what what this means. You know, um, when when Jesus says, if you uh, experience lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. I mean, my first thought is, well, no, I, you know, I can I can tell my wife. Uh, pretty easily, I experienced lust in my heart. She knows that already. You know, <laughs> she, she knows she married a human male. You know, she understands that. But but if I come in and say, oh, and by the way, you know, I'm also committing adultery, that's going to be a very very different conversation. So when I when I hear that, you know, I'm not afraid to say, I, you know, I got to understand that. I have to, I have to, because because understanding the words of Jesus has given me so much joy. I don't want to leave any of the joy lying on the ground. You know, I mean, that's what my life is about. It's about like finding that that joy of connection. Yeah. In Philippians, I think it's 126 where the Apostle Paul says, everything I'm doing for you, I'm doing for your joy and progress in the faith, right? That you experience both joy and progress. I think when I hear you say the phrase blind faith, I, I think I agree with what you're saying because I think the result of blind faith is you don't learn anything. Like you just do it. But in the experience of doing it and observe, you don't, and I think that's one of the things you got on about, about the romantics is that part of romanticism is looking outside of yourself and actually observing what's there, which is a big point of Peterson's, right? Jordan Peterson, where he's like, we often rationalize things. We have an experience with something in the world. We go right into our heads. We use our rationality to rationalize how we're going to think about it. And then we spit that out. And he's like, just shut up your brain for a minute and look outside of yourself and see what's really there. And if you observe, it'll be way different. And I think in Christian obedience, similarly, Peterson's right. And I think you're right in observing this in the romantics. Like there is a blind obedience, which is meaning my mind is shut. This, my soul isn't looking and I just do what I'm told, hoping to get to heaven moralistically. But then there's like a ignorant obedience, believing in the pedagogy of the teacher in the lab of life itself where you're willing to go through the drama of the thing to learn the lesson in situ of experience, which I think is in some sense a very romantic notion. Yeah, the, the notion that you are an interact, you know, the, the um, romantics were always talking about nature, but they had this kind of 
their relationship with nature developed over time and it developed over different people. I talk about the fact that Wordsworth and Coleridge developed a certain relationship with nature and then they passed on to Keats, who was a younger man who opened that up in a new and more tragic and more interesting way. Uh, but I think that you're, you're absolutely right about this. And Jordan is absolutely right about this, that the, um, you know, for many years I practiced Zen. And one of the things about Zen is that you put everything, all those assumptions aside and just look at the world. And in doing that, I found something incredibly intense and beautiful, but I noticed that it was missing something. It was missing uh, the spirit that is coming through the world. We're not just looking at a bunch of objects that are taking shape in our minds. We are looking at a bunch of objects that take shape in our minds in a very specific and uh, specific and uh, uniform way. I mean, we can see the world in many different ways, but we can't see it as it's not. Uh, and, and that's what one of the interesting things about the time we're living in right now is people telling us that things are what they're not. You know, they're saying, oh, a man is a woman. If he feels like a woman, he becomes a woman. You say, well, no, he's, you know, he's actually not. I mean, so that you have a relationship with the world. It is forming in your mind. But it is also a relationship through the world with something beyond the world. I think I think that's the key point. And that's when you go back to thinkers like Aquinas, who are so uh, trying to find out in detail, what is my mind connecting with? What is the spirit telling me? What? How does the spirit, how exactly does the spirit connect me to God? Uh, you know, those are the questions I think that we have lost through uh, uh, materialist ideas, like, for instance, uh, Freudian psychology, which, you know, I also experienced and it experienced to my good, but at the same time, it left me locked up in my own head. And I think getting past that is the whole point. So what do you, I'm so, I guess maybe I'm a little bit, so, okay. So in, in the new Testament, Paul sometimes refers to the believers, you know, especially young believers as, as children. And, you know, he's going to give them milk because they can't handle anything else. And so part of the reason why we started this podcast was because I agree with you. I think that there's a questions that need to be asked, like, like, why should I not lust even? Like, why should I not murder somebody? You know, because sometimes you get angry. So like, these are questions that a lot of young Christians have to want to ask. And a lot of churches don't even want to give an answer. They just want to be like, because the Bible says so, which is, I think it's just a terrible answer. So we, we started this to ask these questions, but I also think that there is something to like when I, when I was first getting back into Christianity and I came to this church, like there were some certain disciplines and practices that like when Nick, uh, pastor Nick and some of the pastors here started to disciple me that they were just like, these are things that you kind of have to do. And this is where I'm like, I feel like I'm, maybe I'm not understanding well enough what you're saying, but like, there are some things that I had to do right away that I wouldn't, that I didn't totally understand why I had to do them because of my sin nature um, had so like destroyed my ability to reason um, that becoming a new believer opened my eyes up, but it, it opened me up to, I think in more ways being humble enough to say, I'm going to do some of these things I don't totally understand yet with the hope that later on God will reveal them to me. And, and maybe that's what you're saying, but like, I do feel like there's a lot of Christian, young Christians that I know that they won't do it unless they know why. But I'm wondering how much d does your sin play a part in your capacity to understand why before you actually do the practice? Does that make sense? Yeah, no. And it's, it's also huge. And I think that it, there is, you know, you are, again, you're dealing with the, the king of heaven and earth. So when he tells you to do something, you sort of think like, okay, well, let me, let me, you know, but, but I think it, it, if you don't understand, the reason has to come with you eventually too. And I think that it's, yeah. it's, it is right and proper for free men and, and Christ has set us free. It is right and proper for free men uh, to understand. And, you know, Jesus said, I no longer call you servants or slaves because now I've told you what I'm up to. And I'm, my thinking, my th I'm thinking is, OK, you told me, but now I got to <laughs> now I got to work to get to know it. And the point about romanticism uh, is that it understands that you don't always get to know it, to understand things like that by thinking about them. Sometimes you have to live them and you have to live them with open heart and with knowledge. And, I, you know, I, I don't think. You know, I think you're talking about, um, you know, being mentored, which is extraordinarily important. You know, I mean, I think that um, one of one of the 
things that disturbs me most in the lives of young people today is they are taught not to listen to people. They are taught that, you know, certain ideas, if someone disagrees with you, he's hateful and you should shout him down and all this. I think that's, you know, that's a terrible thing. Of course, you should listen to somebody who's been further down the road uh, than you. Of course, of course you should, you must, you know, Uh, and if you can't learn and if you can't uh, sometimes just follow directions because you trust the person you're talking to. Uh, you're you're frozen. You're you're done. You know. So you're talking yeah. about methodology, uh, which I com- and I completely agree with you there. I think, of course, of, and I think you would both agree with this that the opposite of that, the other side of that, is if you can follow people without thinking and find that you followed them uh, straight to hell, and that's the the reason yeah. that your mind always has to be engaged and your heart has to always be engaged with what you're doing, uh, because yeah. it's not about the you know you can't trust princes, you can't trust your leaders beyond when they go beyond uh, the, the realm of God. I think. Yeah. So okay. So just to remind our listeners, we're this is Andrew Clavin. We're talking about the truth and beauty, his latest book on Jesus and the history and material of romantics. I just want to say that. Um, the biographical information and summaries of the romantic authors was fantastic in the book. I'm sure the editing process was grueling. I'm sure there were all kinds of anecdotes you wish you could have kept kept in there, you know. But um, but I felt like you captured a lot of really interesting things. And nobody comes off. There's no hagiography in the book. Like it's really funny how like everybody comes off with warts, um, even the heroes. I, just the way you describe Collard's just I just cracks me up. It's just kind of like this guy who just could not shut up. But was so brilliant that the joy of listening to even himself was like the great joy of his life, you know, and, and then how it really enriched people, even people who basically described him as the man who wouldn't shut up. Like you basically said about Keats, I think it's in the sixth chapter, you're kind of like, yeah, Keats wrote to his buddy and was like, yeah, I talked to this guy for an hour and he just wouldn't shut his face. And then you were like, and then it just turns out that Keats wrote about all this stuff from that one conversation and it like really enriched his poetry. I, you know, I, I call him the not so Holy spirit because he goes from person to person in this book and he, he's a mess, you know, he's a, a, a drug addict. Uh, he's an alcoholic. He's an hysteric. He's utterly falling apart. He's also not just the most brilliant man of his time. He's one of the most brilliant men of any time. Uh, and, and of all of the romantics, he is the one who was, uh, solidly located in Christ his whole life. He's the, the only one who said, no, you know, if you let go of this, we've let go of everything. Uh, mm-hmm. And and he brought each one of them uh, this kind of inspiration, each person he talked to. And as you say, he never shut up. And each person he talked to was massively affected. One guy went mad. Uh, Wordsworth became a great poet through talking about him. Uh, Keats, at, at the end of his very, very short life, was frozen. And he, talking to him for 45 minutes to two hours, uh, opened him up to write some of the greatest mm-hmm. English poetry since Shakespeare. Uh, Mary Shelley was a little girl when she heard him come to his house, her house and uh, and read his great poem, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, and it just obviously fills her book, Frankenstein. It's on almost every page mm-hmm. of Frankenstein. A remarkable, remarkable character uh, who was only a poet, by the way, for five years. He only wrote poetry for five years and wrote some of the greatest uh, poetry in English. And each one of them, you're absolutely right. They were far from saints. I mean, they were nowhere near uh, uh, perfect in any way, shape or form. But but each one of them in his suffering, you know, genius kind of found some piece of this broken society and started to put it back together again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I want to ask, I want to ask one more question. And I think a more practical question um, that, I mean, you, you're in a, you're in an interesting um, situation in your life because you work at the daily wire, which is a, a right-wing conservative media news outlet. I think it's great. I listen to a lot of their stuff. So big fan, but um, there's people who obviously are, are out, they're not in the church, but they're out doing work. Um, whether it's in media, whether, you know, they're a carpenter, whatever it is, how did, I guess, how did your, does your new way of looking at Jesus affect your work going forward? And then how can it also, how can it, you know, this new view affect and maybe change the way that other people live out their work? I mean, yeah, specifically relative to the fact that your job is to kind of be a firebrand. Like, oh, true. Yes. like your, yeah. it's like your job to like push back a certain kind of bullying that's kind of loud and sometimes abusive. And yet to a certain extent, you're supposed to be constrained by the ethics of Christ. And yet you have to kind of like tell it like it is. And the stuff I've watched from you, I felt like you've like been very careful, like to actually be res- respectful, but very, but have a lot of candor 
And some I see some Christian commentators who are like conservative Christians, but also trying to like push back on stuff. They get real like petty and like, you know, like, so like, do you want to say a little bit about like just inhabiting this world as a believer, but who has a job of being a firebrand when there are con- Christian ethical and virtue constraints on the tongue, but also you have to be a public poet, thinker, speaker. You're always going to make somebody mad. I mean, and how do you? Yeah, I'm always making people mad. Yeah. It's true. I, I, I find, to be honest with you, I find I get a lot less hate than most of the guys who do what I do. And I'm not sure what, why that is exactly. I, I assume it's because I'm just so lovable, but I, but I don't really know. Uh, I think I your do. manner is more careful. What? I think you do. I think you work harder than most to let the content be offensive rather than the manner. Because I do not believe, I mean, I am a, a political, I'm an American conservative, which is different than a European conservative. But what, mm-hmm. what I'm trying to conserve is the constitution, a system for keeping people free, which I think it, is, is better than not being free. I think being free is better than not being free. Um, and so I, I always emphasize that we conservatives are not better people than the people on the left, but our ideas are right. And <clears throat> theirs, insofar as they are opposed to freedom, are wrong. <clears throat> and when your ideas are wrong, even nice people end up doing very bad things. The, uh, the other day, I was talking to a, a good friend of mine who is a liberal, uh, and he said, well, yes, I, I believe that uh, abortion is murder, but it's better than the alternative. <laughs> I said, I said, you know, it's a sentence that doesn't make any sense, you know, because, because murder is kind of the, the dead end of evil. You know, it's kind of where you get to if you're evil. And and so that that idea, you wind up doing terrible things without being a terrible person. And that. Um, and, and that's even in worse in a way uh, than, you know, some people are just lost to evil, you know, but a good person who winds up with blood on his hands because he just had a bad idea is even worse. And so I've never thought the one thing I have never thought is that um, the people I oppose politically are are worse than me. You know, I, I believe me, I know <laughs> I know who I am. I haven't got any delusions about that whatsoever, you know, but the ideas matter. You know, I, you know, we're talking about uh, ideas, you know, philosophy, ideas and the experience of life. I mean, those are the subjects that we're, we're talking about. And all of those things are incredibly important. And when your ideas are wrong, even by just a little bit, when you're intellectually dishonest, I've seen this again and again, you go along as if everything's fine and then you fall off the table. Uh, you know, just one one stupid mistake like that. Uh, abortion is murder, but it's better than the alternative. You know, you you fall right off the table into the pit, and so I'm I'm ferocious about these ideas, and I can I, I can make fun of them forever and uh, attack them forever, but I never kid myself that I'm a better person or any less prone to those traps than anybody else. And maybe maybe that helps. Maybe that's what keeps me from getting the real uh, storm of hatred some of my colleagues get. I don't know. Yeah. Well, um, I guess. We'll wrap this up right now, but for people who do want to get your book, I mean, I'm sure it's it's everywhere, Amazon, all over the place. I, I got it. I got the audio book on Google. Um, I guess, yeah. So, what are all the places that they where that they can go to get the book? Oh, and we should say Andrew has not committed the horrible and cardinal sin of audiobooks. He did read the book himself, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I just want to thank you for that. I know that's a ton of work. And as an Audible listener, I hugely appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you. You know, I've, I've, I've stopped reading most of my novels myself because the characters are so much younger than I am at this point. Right. But, but this, I thought I didn't have that problem. I think when you're a commentator and people listen to you on YouTube or on your channels or whatever, and people are accustomed to the intonation of your voice as yes. a speaker, yes. and then they go read your book or listen to your book, and it's like some totally other guy. You're like, who's this pretty boy from New York reading Andrew's book? Like, it's not right. So anyway, I appreciate it. And at least in this case, you did so. Well, that, well thanks. Yeah, and, I understand how like when like in novels where people try to intone voices differently and characterize different characters right. and stuff like that, that really like is an actor's job. And I get that. That's it. That's 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 why I've stopped a little bit. But, um, you know, it, it was always helpful. A lot of people don't like Amazon and I understand why, uh, but it's always helpful when people pick up the book on Amazon because it makes it go up the rankings. You know? Oh yeah. And that, that's a helpful thing. Uh, this book, I have to tell you, this book not only went up the rankings on Amazon, it was a USA Today bestseller, which 
I mean, everybody at the company, including me, were just absolutely astounded by that. You write a book about uh, Jesus and the romantic poets. You're not really looking for that bestseller. <laughs> yeah, and Zondervan doesn't have a lot of bestsellers. No, and and they were they were absolutely uh, stunned, and so was I. So it was great. Yeah, and, and the reactions to it also have been. I mean, if you read the reviews, the reactions have been incredibly emotional. Uh, yeah. and, the, and people do feel reconnected. Uh, and some people who were non-believers are writing me and telling me it has opened up a path for them. And so I feel really gratified by that. Yeah. For those of you listening, that there's he has uh, some chapters in the beginning of the book that are about um, the different issues. And he connects those to different romantics and oftentimes people who had the opposite view in the romantic movement. The first chapter is about all these different romantics coming together in this, this one particular party. That's really kind of hilarious. And then there's two middle chapters on like the bridge. And then there's like, I think it's four chapters about like each of these sorts of issues and Jesus. And you like more specifically focus on Jesus. I think it's a really good layout. It listens well, reads well. I just want to say that I mean, it's fun to read books by authors when theologians write sometimes it can be very tedious so this doesn't have that tedious feel to it so you might if you're like well i don't know if i want to read a book that's like it's well but andrew's not a theologian and in this case it's a real help in terms of like how these come together and for me who have not i've had not have had a lot of education in the romantics to be introduced to some of these people with these anecdotes and histories and so on i found very just just informational like i got i got oriented to a group of people who I only knew some comments mediated through the Anglophiles. So I just, I really appreciated well, getting you. an education while interacting with something. And it was a, it was a pleasure as well. Like it was, it was like, it was written, like the book was meant to be a pleasure, which I appreciated. Well, thank you very much. I was well aware that I was writing for an audience that might not have ever read a poem or wanted to read a poem. Uh, and I, I yeah. wanted to introduce these people as people because they were brilliant. They were brilliant people and hilarious and uh, wild. And it, it's, it was a thrill to write about them. Yeah. yeah. Being somebody whose career is to talk about Jesus, uh, maybe the more gratifying thing is for me to tell you, I've read more poetry in the last two months than I have in a long time. Oh, that's, that is great to hear. It is great to hear because yeah. it is a beautiful way of inter- it does. It, I think it enlivens the way you experience the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, all right. We'll wrap this up. Andrew, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and, and talking about your book. Thanks for writing the book. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, people will go out and, and listen to it or buy it and, and read it themselves. Um, if they want to know, if they want to hear more of you, obviously you have your show, the Andrew Clavin um, show. And then is there anywhere else that we can lead people that they can get more in touch with, with what you're doing? Well, the, the Andrew Clavin show is on the daily wire and, uh, you can go on, uh, Twitter where I occasionally make a joke of, or two. Uh, and, uh, and also my, um, my autobiography, my memoir of my conversion is called the great good thing. They might enjoy that as well. Awesome. Yeah. And, and now you won't get banned from Twitter now that Elon yeah. owns it, hopefully. It's amazing. My, my, I've gained like thousands of uh, followers in like hours at a time. It's amazing. Yeah. Oh, and we also want to just encourage you, like, keep giving it to Jordan Peterson about Jesus. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We want him to cross the finish line here. Uh, you know, he's, he's a wonderful guy, but I do, I do yeah. like to torment him about it. You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. Well, thanks so much, Andrew. Yeah. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for talking to you. I really much. Awesome.